Genesis 18, verses 16 through 19. When the men got up to leave, they looked down toward Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Genesis 18, 16 through 19. Our next text. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, is it not written? My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Mark 11 verses 15 through 17. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Tanika. Good morning, everybody. How are you? Yeah, my name's uh, Evan. If you're new, uh, my wife Sandy and I have the joy of leading Park Hill Church. Our church, we are committed to Jesus and practicing his way, following in his teachings by the power of his Holy Spirit. And, and that's what this whole series has been about. Today is the final teaching of our future church series. We've been here 10 weeks. And this series was born through years of conversation and prayer together with some pastors I'm in relationship with. And then the first version of this series was taught and given last spring at a couple of our sister churches, Bridgetown Church in Portland and Reality San Francisco. And now Park Hill is joining three churches here in this city, Light Church and Neighbors Church and our own. We're doing it together in a spirit of unity, saying this is what we are about. These are the things we believe Jesus is calling the church to in our current moment. And so uh, here's what we've talked about up to now. Um, if you can put that slide up. Yeah, that was busy. There you go. Here we go. We've talked about becoming a community of tight-knit, loving relationships and a culture of individualism through practicing community. And then a community of orthodoxy in a culture of idolatry, ideological idolatry, where ideas become what we worship. And we do that through the practice of scripture. And then peacemaking in a culture of political hostility through the practice of hospitality. And a culture of contribution. We're supposed to be God's family that contributes amidst a culture of workaholism and careerism through the practice of vocation. Next slide. And, and a, a community of peace in a culture of outrage and fear through the practice of silence and solitude. Holiness in a culture of moral relativism through the practice of fasting and a community of rest in a culture of exhaustion through the practice of Sabbath. And so just before we pray, notice the practices associated with each of those things. In the next slide, if you can. There it is. Community, scripture, hospitality, vocation, prayer, fasting, Sabbath. These are the things that come straight from Jesus that shape us like him in a world unlike him. Um, and, and these are tangible practices. So if we could just invite the Holy Spirit right now into this moment to search our hearts and set us up for this kind of final teaching and what kind of community he wants us to be today. Heavenly Father, would you come by the power of your Spirit, illuminate our minds to your word, bring us into a place of understanding and empower us to be the presence of Jesus in this moment, in our homes, classrooms, workplace, in our work, in our play, in our rest. Be the king of who we are together. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you've picked up anything from this series, I hope it's this. There's no aspect of your life that discipleship under Jesus doesn't touch. So you are a disciple of Jesus and that affects everything you do. It's not like Jesus has opinions about how you spend money, but not 
your sex life. Or like Jesus has personal spiritual opinions for you, but not social political opinions. No, no, no. Discipleship to Jesus touches all of it, all of life, including our politics, sexuality, our anxiety levels, our career choices. Discipleship to Jesus reframes all of life around Jesus' life so we can actually experience what he calls life to the fullest. And there's ancient language for this, reframing and following him. And the language is a rule of life, rule of life. Jesus gives us this. And this, this idea of a rule of life, it comes from a trellis in a vineyard, right? We've been saying that all series. Jesus said, he's the vine and you are what? Yeah, you're the branches, and through his life, your life bears fruit as you grow as a person of love, but you can't just grow willy-nilly in any direction, right? No, no one's ever seen a vineyard with, like, vines growing on the ground and healthy grapes are on the soil. No, you need a trellis. You need a way to grow that comes from Jesus, and so to grow us forward, we need a rule of life a church-wide commitment to Jesus's patterns by the Spirit's power, okay? So as our world continues to secularize, the people of God will increasingly be defined by the way we flourish toward the humanizing patterns of Jesus, and we move away from the dehumanizing patterns of culture. This is gonna be more and more true. This is our long-term goal as Park Hill Church, and to that end, we plan to make something like this available to everyone. Just throw up this chart. It's just kind of a chart I ripped off from Bridgetown. But uh, we're going to make our own that looks nicer, I think. Um, but here it is. So, so, so you got all the practices across the top under the categories of be with Jesus, become like Jesus, do what Jesus did, which is the church vision. And then, and then you can say, does, does this fit daily for me? Does it fit weekly? Or is this a monthly thing? And we can all say these eight things are essential to following Jesus, but every phase of life looks different. And so something like this will be available to all of you, uh, whether you're in a community or not, because we believe Jesus is calling us to these things and has always called the church to these things. And so this will be a measurable, like, concrete chart, <laughs> if you're the chart person, uh, that we can actually look at and live by together. Why? Why are we doing all this? Because we believe the future church is ancient. We're not reinventing any wheels here, you guys. Our roots go straight back to the teachings of Jesus, who was God in the flesh, and he was crucified and raised from the dead and now rules over creation, and he'll one day bring justice. Jesus is going to straighten out every crooked path and wipe away every tear, and in C.S. Lewis's words, make every sad thing come untrue. He's gonna bring justice. In the words of that famous Christmas hymn, uh, in his name, all oppression will cease, you guys. Which brings us to our final teaching for the series, which is a community of justice in a culture of more and mine through the practice of simplicity and generosity. Okay. Our king will one day return to bring total justice and healing. But until then, we bring justice ahead of him. We prepare the way of the Lord like that. And so the main plot line of scripture, you guys, here's the main plot line. God is building a family, a house where he can live in with his people. And this house will act like God in the world. And as God's house behaves like God in the world, all the other houses will experience God's healing and be saved into God's house. That's the story. God is building a household. And, and so there's two main Bible words for how God's household acts. Two main Bible words that run through the whole narrative. And these two words are righteousness and justice. Can we say that together? Righteousness and justice. Yeah, huge Bible words here. We opened with two passages from Scripture, Tanika read, and these two passages are central to the storyline of righteousness and justice. Um, there are two moments, one in the Old Testament and one in the New Testament, where God physically visits Abraham's house. He literally comes to like his house that he's building in person. Uh, in the old and the new. Um, the first one was Genesis 18, and the second visit 
is Mark 11. And we're going to look at these two moments and we hold them up together and look at God through these two stories. We learn a lot about what it means to live like God in the world. Um, So let's look at the first visit, right? Genesis 18. Backstory. If you know that, how many of you know the story of Abraham a little bit? You've heard of the guy, Abraham? Cool. Two people have heard of Abraham. That's great. So, uh, so a little backstory on Abraham. In Genesis 15, God visits him under the starry sky. Have you ever seen the starry sky? We were in the Grand Canyon a week ago, uh, hiked to the river and back. It was a blast, and there are stars, you guys. Stars exist. And so Abraham looks at the stars, and God says, look at them. That's how many kids. I'm going to bless the world through a massive family of righteousness and justice that acts like me. And Abraham's like, I'm old. I don't have the ability to procreate anymore. (laughs) We're all like in our 90s, me and my wife. And God's like, trust me. And, And now we get to Genesis 18, this moment in the story where Yahweh, the God of the Bible, appears in physical form to Abraham and his wife, Sarah, for dinner. They come to dinner. Um, to let them know these plans are still in motion. God will still get his family. And and so, to our text, uh, verse 16 of Genesis 18, it says, when the men got up to leave, again, the men in the story is Yahweh. If If you read the story, whenever these three men speak, it says Yahweh speaks, which is wild. So some say this is Yahweh with two angels in bodies, some, uh, some say this is the Trinity in three bodies. I don't know. Uh, there's debate about that. No one knows for sure. Either way, when these three men speak in the story, it says Yahweh speaks. So these three men get up to leave. Dinner's over. And it says they, the three men, Yahweh, looked towards Sodom. And Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Abraham will surely become a great, powerful nation. All the nations will be blessed through him. This is what God's like on pins and needles. Shall I hide this? I can't wait to share this. For I've chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what? What is right and just. Those are the words righteousness and justice. This is why God's family exists in the world. Okay, and then, and then verse 20 comes along as a contrast. So the three men, they turn from Abraham and look at this city called Sodom and its neighboring city, Gomorrah, Sodom and Gomorrah. So Abraham's talking about, God, Yahweh is talking about Abraham, my family, my house of righteousness and justice. And he says, by contrast, the Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sins so grievous that I'll go down and see if what they've done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. So this is a little text tool that the writers of the Bible use. Contrast. Got Abraham, righteousness and justice. Sodom and Gomorrah, opposite. This is a teaching moment for the readers. And so so, um, we have to understand though, what did Sodom and Gomorrah do wrong? How many of you have heard of Sodom and Gomorrah? A lot more hands have heard of Sodom and Gomorrah than Abraham. (laughs) Excellent. Um, So why did God punish Sodom and Gomorrah? What was their injustice? Does anybody know? This is where I have to give a little disclaimer. If you're here with small children, the next part gets a little bit gritty. Uh, But a little PG-13 or somewhere between PG-13 and R, maybe. But this is very important. It's very important that I say this. So, um, unfortunately, there's this really bad interpretation of these texts out there in the world. And this bad interpretation has gained a lot of traction in certain parts of the church. And it's this. The bad interpretation is that the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was quote, the sin of homosexuality, okay? And this interpretation comes from a misreading of Genesis 19 where two of the three Yahweh men 
go down to visit Sodom and Gomorrah, and the citizens of Sodom basically try to gang rape these two unfamiliar out-of-towners, most likely because they're foreigners. This isn't the only story like this in the scriptures where travelers get physically dominated simply because they're from out of town. In Judges 19, there's a story where a town kind of gangs up on this out-of-town guy to violate him, but they end up doing it to a woman instead who gets kind of scapegoated, which shows this is not about orientation, but about power dynamics over a foreigner, okay? Very common in the ancient world. Not about sexual orientation, but about power dynamics over a foreigner. So I wanna say clearly, the Bible never once associates Sodom and Gomorrah with what we know as same-sex attraction today. Not once. Again, gang rape, yes, regardless of orientation, but LGBTQ, not remotely. In fact, the book of Ezekiel specifically states what the sin of Sodom was. This is really important for our sermon today. The true sin of Sodom helps us understand righteousness and justice. Are you ready for it? Here's the true sin of Sodom and Gomorrah according to the Bible, Ezekiel. It says, now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. Could I be any more clear? This is the sin. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. They were haughty, prideful, and did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them as you've seen. That's Sodom's sin. Specifically, prideful, overfed, ignoring the poor. And those detestable things, you guys, that's a, that's a technical word in the Bible. You've heard the word abomination. That's a junk drawer word for various objectionable acts that could be anything, including child sacrifice, idol worship, yes, sexual immorality, and even a prideful look in Proverbs 6, or a lying tongue is an abomination. So it's very unfortunate that Sodom has been cast as this like ancient gay city or whatever, because that interpretation has enabled the church to read this story and say, well, they're out there obviously evil. They're obviously evil. But then miss that Sodom isn't a them. Sodom is us. If we are arrogant, if we are overfed and unconcerned with the poor and needy while they remain unseen, we are Sodom at that point. And we need to come face to face with Yahweh's justice. So in this key moment, God visits Abraham's house to call Abraham away from Sodom's overfed, unconcerned for the poor, and instead live as Yahweh's family of justice and righteousness in the world. And from that moment on, Yahweh's family is a family that does righteousness and justice. This is what we do. It's like a household culture. How many of you guys, you know when you walk into your parents' house for Thanksgiving, there's just things you do, right? Like every family has a culture. In the Wickham family, we alternate grandma's houses on Thanksgiving and Christmas every year. It's just what we do. We flip the coins so it would be super fair, right? So every year they alternate. But this is just what we do. We're, the Wickham household is specific in our apologies. We say what we did wrong. No, like it's like, Harper, you're sorry. Don't just say sorry. I'm sorry for, and finish the sentence. This is just what we do. We try, we're still trying to work in no Bible, no breakfast as something we do. It's very difficult. We do Sabbath pancakes. That's very easy. It's something we do. It's, it's, it's our family culture. Yahweh's house has a family culture. Ever since Abraham, here we do righteousness and justice. It's what we do. Wherever God's people are in the world, this should be happening. But unfortunately, with those words, righteousness and justice, there's confusion, right? We even have some division in the American church around those words, justice. Some of us hear righteousness, and what do you feel? Righteousness. 
It feels like a churchy word, right? About like morality and obeying the rules. And other of us hear justice and it feels like a secular word about politics or something, right? And our problem in the American mindset, for us, a righteous person is a decent guy who keeps the rules. And justice in our minds is bad guys getting punished. And then social justice is we get these ideas, right? Social justice is uh, giving handouts, food, welfare to the poor, maybe passing a law to fight classism in the system or stopping sex trafficking. And we have all of these definitions for these words. And don't get me wrong, all of that is great, wonderful. It's very good to obey laws (laughs) and protecting the vulnerable and fighting oppressive systems through legislation. That's all important work that flows from the bigger picture of righteousness and justice. But those words are, in the Bible, they're way richer. They're much deeper ideas. And and so here it is. Throughout the story of Scripture, righteousness means this. Community life with all relationships, God, others, self, rest of creation. Your relationships with those things are well-ordered, full of shalom, which means whole peace, flourishing as God designed them to be. And so with that definition, the righteous person isn't a nice guy who keeps the law. A righteous person is someone who feeds all of those relationships with peace and shalom. Your relationship with God and others and your relationship with yourself and your relationship with creation, they're all getting richer. That's the Bible's definition of righteousness. And the paradigm story for this in scripture is Noah. The first guy that the Bible calls righteous is the guy who built the ark, Noah. Check it out in Genesis 6. It says Noah was a what? He was a righteous man. That's the first time the word shows up. And and he's blameless among the people. He walks faithfully with God and he has these three sons that serve the household. And then here's that contrast, right? The Bible likes to say this, not that. He says, now the earth was corrupt, not righteous, right? Full of violence, unrighteous. So the, so the first thing the Bible says about Noah is that he's, he's this righteous guy, he's blameless. He has great relationships. All his relationships are rightly ordered. That's the idea from the, bat, from the get-go in the scriptures. And the second paradigm story of righteousness is Abraham, our man today. Um, In that famous scene, again, there's a stars in the sky and God says, I will give you children and I will make your name great. I will be, make you a blessing. Your relationships with other families will be amazing. God is promising him what? Righteousness. And, and Abraham responds like this, Genesis 15, 6. It says, Abraham believed Yahweh, that word believe is amen, is to say amen. So be it, Lord. Be it as you say it will be. And God says, boom, that is righteous. God credits Abraham as righteous. In other words, God's like, I'm going to build something you can't build. I'm going to make you righteous. And Abraham says, I don't understand how. doesn't make sense, but I believe you can. And I believe you will do this through me. And God's like, that's what I'm talking about. That's righteousness. That's my kind of guy. I'm going to heal the world through that kind of righteousness. So to bring this home for us, what does this mean? Picture your life and all your relationships with your parents, if you have kids, if you have brothers and sisters, teachers, work bosses, all of your relationships are as they should be. They're thriving. Your relationships are thriving. And you're at peace with yourself. No unexplained anxiety. Just joyful creativity. You're not abusing creation. You're harnessing creation around you for its potential for good. And you're loving in communion with God himself. All is as it should be. Picture that life. What is, what's different about that life compared to this one now? Picture your current life now. 
So you have the righteous life and then you have your current life. What does that gap look like? What are some steps, conversations, repentance? What are some steps you can take that would move you from your current life to the shalom righteous life? So those steps are doing righteousness. That's in the Bible. Someone who does righteousness does those things that feed into shalom. That's the idea of righteousness in the scripture. This is what God's family does. It's not just obeying the law. It's not just being a moral person. It's feeding that full abundant life that God promises his family. Adding to shalom. So if that's righteousness, what does it mean to do justice? It's similar, but with a key difference. Slide 19. Doing righteousness feeds shalom, but doing justice restores shalom when it's disturbed, okay? And it always costs. It'll be inconvenient. Justice is inherently inconvenient. Whether it's your time, energy, money, or influence, you have to pay, right? So doing justice means inconveniencing yourself for the sake of the worthless person according to society, especially the widow, orphan, stranger, and poor. This is biblical justice. And, and if you're going to do injustice, that's evil. It looks like this, keeping your stuff for your own comfort. The biblical definition of injustice, keeping my own stuff for my own comfort. While there are people in the world who are needy. In the words of Ezekiel, this is the sin of Sodom, arrogant, overfed, unconcerned for the poor. Okay? So righteousness feeds shalom. Justice restores it at a cost to you. And the ultimate reason we do this, you guys, because God does it. God did it for you. God became human, inconvenienced himself infinitely to become scorned and shamed and brutally beaten to death so that forgiveness and family belonging would be yours. So we do justice at cost to us because God did it for us at cost to him. So in the scriptures, in Jesus's mind, here's the terms, you guys. The righteous and just person is the person who's willing to disadvantage themselves for the advantage of the community. Are you a righteous person? Are you willing to disadvantage, inconvenience yourself? And, and on, on the opposite end, who's the wicked person in Scripture? The wicked are those who are willing to disadvantage the community to lift up themselves. It's the definition of the wicked all through the text. So when Yahweh first comes to Abraham's house, Genesis 18, Yahweh's like, hey, in this house, we do righteousness and justice. This is just what we do. We willingly inconvenience ourselves for the sake of the community, especially the poor. And this is how God's like, this is how I'm gonna save the world. But unfortunately, if you read through the Bible, the whole Old Testament is like a broken record of God's family losing the plot line over and over. The whole Old Testament, God's family abandons justice. They crash and burn, cry out for help. You guys know the story maybe of the golden calf. As soon as God's people are delivered from Egypt, they do injustice by setting up a golden cow and calling it Yahweh. Um, and from that moment on, it's like a broken record. God's people fail to, uh, to, to lay themselves down for the sake of others. And then they cry out for help. God saves, rinse, repeat, right? Wash, rinse, repeat. Keeps happening. And, um, and then we get to the New Testament. Israel's religious leaders are no different. The leaders of God's family, you guys, who are supposed to be leading the way in protecting the poor and vulnerable, instead they objectify and exploit the poor or ignore them altogether, which is what Sodom did, unconcerned for the poor. That was Sodom and Gomorrah's sin. And now Israel is doing Sodom's sin. 
And so in one of the most intense scenes of the whole Bible, you see Jesus pronouncing woes, judgments on the leaders of Abraham's house. Here's just one of them, Matthew 23, 23. Jesus says, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give, you seem generous, but you've neglected the more important matters, justice, mercy, faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. And here's one more woe, Jesus says. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Jesus has a special place in his heart of anger for people that fake righteousness and justice in his house. It's almost like Yahweh, nothing ticks off Yahweh more than this in the scriptures, especially when people in power in his church act outwardly like they're righteous and just when their lives aren't in line. Throughout the scriptures, God has just as much of a warning for those doing injustice as he does for those not doing justice at all. Unconcern. And all of this brings us to the second text we read. Tanika read um, Genesis 18 and, and Mark 11. Remember the story she read? Jesus flips over tables in the Jewish temple, the center of Abraham's house, the center of Jewish life. Jesus comes in and goes berserk, right? This is once again Yahweh coming to Abraham's house but with a key difference. Do you see the difference? The first time when Yahweh comes to Abraham's house, he's coming to tell him, I want to bless you and I'm going to bring justice on Sodom. But this time Yahweh's like, hey, I wanted to bless you, but now I'm bringing justice on you, my house. It's this very intense moment. And here's the text again. It says, on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and wouldn't allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. And when evening came, Jesus and his, and his disciples went out of the city to show that God is departing. God is leaving this place. Famous scene. How many of you heard this scene before? Jesus goes berserk in the temple. Yeah, it's very well known for good reason, not just because Jesus is being dramatic, uh, but because this is, I don't know if you knew this, this is one of the few events that's in all four Gospels. There's only like five things <laughs> that are in all four Gospels. You got the cross, the resurrection. You don't even have his birth in all four Gospels, but you have the, the tables. You have this. So it's almost like for the biographers of Jesus, this was central to what Jesus was all about. Why? Well, for one, many scholars argue that this event is what got Jesus killed intentionally and the question is why? Why did Jesus risk his neck and ultimately like lose his neck, die over a PR stunt, over like street theater? I always liken this scene to like a Banksy painting on the side of a high rise or something to make a big political statement. That's what Jesus was doing. Why did Jesus risk his life to do this? He loved the temple, right? The earliest scene of his life, he's 12 years old, like he can't leave the temple. I gotta be about my father's business in the temple. Jesus came here all the time. He loved the temple. Why is he wrecking it? The answer goes all the way back to that first visit in Genesis 18. God comes to Abraham saying, I choose you to act like me. I'm choosing a people to behave like me 
by doing righteousness and justice so that the whole world will experience my healing presence. But in this moment of Jesus turning over tables, he's saying, my family, you have lost the plot line for the last time. This is Yahweh essentially saying, in a paraphrase, I'm paraphrasing here, hey, my family, you're ignoring justice, exploiting the needy with silence. Like, what do you mean? I, I, I give to the needy once a month when I think about it and see the World Vision $35 statement on my whatever. Like, you're concerned with your own comforts and refusing to be generous, which was exactly the sin of Sodom. So now you'll be treated like Sodom because I'm righteous and I'm just and I don't have favorites. God's family is abusing the vulnerable and ignoring the poor and he's like, not in my house. My house will be a house of prayer for all nations. This is why. This is why he turned over the tables. This is why the four gospels have this story. This is why it's central to God getting the whole world back on track. And I love Matthew's retelling of the story where it has children and blind and lame people coming to Jesus right after he turns over the tables and the Pharisees. The men in power are like, how dare he? Whose authority does he have? And then you see blind and lame and then kids. A bunch of kids come around Jesus and start singing Hosanna and Jesus is just like, bring it. And then all the people in power are like, like cat hissing and the kids are just like shouting and like you just see this moment of contrast again the, the bible is teaching you through contrast and the gospel writers couldn't be clear god's house is a house of justice for the poor where worthless people according to society are given the seat of honor through inconvenient generosity on our part which means sacrificing time in ways maybe we haven't thought or sacrificing our money, our energy. This is just what we do. This is the culture of Yahweh's house. In other words, to fit it in our future church series, tangible justice needs to be part of your rule of life and mine. How is justice part of your weekly rhythms of following Jesus? Jesus, the head of this family, the church, he led the way by disadvantaging himself to death <laughs> so that broken and lost people, which is all of us, might be healed and adopted into God's family forever. And so the church was born because Jesus did righteousness for us. And now we, the church, will thrive in San Diego as we do the same righteousness by his spirit's power. This is exactly how the early church lived. Did you know this? The first 300 years of the church, they acted like Yahweh to the point where they shocked Rome. Uh, New Testament scholar Larry Hurtado, he has a book. Look at this title. This is the book title. Why on earth did anyone become a Christian in the first three centuries? I love that title. And it's a great question, right? Why would you become a follower of a dead rabbi from the armpit of the ancient world one of the main reasons you would become a Christian, Hurtado explains, is because the Christian church was both offensive and attractive at the same time to the whole world. Just completely offensive, stirring the pot, and completely attractive, revolutionizing ethics. And so the early church, they changed the way people think in these five ways. The early church was number one, multi-ethnic and unified across nationalities. Unheard of. Barbaric tribalism reigned. No one knew multi-ethnic anything. Number two, the church was highly committed to caring for the poor and marginalized. Again, unheard of. Power dynamics were the way of the world. And number three, non-retaliatory, marked by a commitment to forgive, loving your enemy, basically. Loving your enemy. Number four, strongly and practically against abortion and infanticide. They would save live babies from exposure, which was a common practice by the pagans. If they didn't want a certain baby, they'd leave them on an idol or sacrifice them or just leave them in the wild. Christians would regularly practice a habit of baby rescue. This was infanticide akin to abortion. And number five, revolutionized the sexual ethic. 
This is the first time consent for both males and females was introduced to the sexual encounter. Before this, it was men are in power and they get to do whatever they want with whoever they want and women just have to just kind of stay at home. And that was literally the, the ethic. So look at these five things that the church, the just righteous church, look what they brought to the world. See those first two, multi-ethnic, unified, highly committed to caring for the poor. Those look kind of like leftist, don't they? Put them in American modern politics. Those first two are progressive. And then look at number four and five. Strongly against abortion and infanticide, revolutionize the sex. Those things feel conservative and right-wing, right? Very interesting. And then look at number three. Nobody wants that one. <laughs> Nobody wants not to retaliate. Nobody wants nonviolence. Nobody wants to love their enemy. So, so back then and still today, the church is to be a shockingly offensive intersection with culture. This is still who we're called to be. Um, this is what we do. This is what justice and righteousness looks like in the world. And the question, and it's inconvenient, you guys. It'll cost us influence and culture. It'll cost us time and money. But how? How do we get there? How do we become that? Is there a practice from Jesus that might help us inch our way toward justice and away from a culture of more and mine. Is there a practice for this? And the answer is yes. It's the practice of simplicity and generosity. Simplicity and generosity. We talk a lot about generosity here. We even have a liturgy. We all said the liturgy today, again. But we don't talk about simplicity enough. Simplicity and generosity are like breathing in and out. They feed each other. When you practice simplicity, like gospel minimalism, you can be free from excess in a way that frees you to do justice. For most of us, unless we're like genuinely below the poverty line here, for most of us, anyone can get rid of extra junk, right? It's not that hard to like give stuff you don't think you need away and your life doesn't change much. But listen, Jesus' invitation to simplicity is an invitation to let go of the things you want to maximize generosity and justice for those who are truly in need. This is the beginning of justice, very practically. So what would this look like for you? Simplifying your money taking stock of your weekly schedule, your time. Maybe you give to charity, that's great. Maybe you've been giving to the same charity for 10 years like I have, that's great. But what would it look like to share your life with the vulnerable, not just 2%? As schools continue to open up, maybe it's mentoring or tutoring at-risk youth. Maybe it's like, oh man, I can't do 90 minutes a week. I'm so busy then maybe simplicity for you means practicing that with your schedule and actually budgeting your time. And maybe right now you're like, wait, does Jesus actually teach this? Jesus minimalism, is that a thing or is that just a weird hipster Christian thing? No, the answer is like, absolutely. Jesus teaches simplicity. It's one of his clearest yet least discussed teachings. Jesus commands in his Sermon on the Mount, very clearly, do not store up treasure. It's a command. And in our wealthy Southern California culture with our 401ks and our Roth IRAs, none of which are bad in and of themselves, but we have all of this stuff and we like to wiggle around Jesus' simplicity command. Like, well, Jesus doesn't say how much percent is too much and what is storing up after all is it 60% excess is it is it the Dave Ramsey like six months of savings keeps me afloat is that storing up Jesus actually doesn't give Dave Ramsey any input Jesus doesn't do that Jesus Jesus doesn't say how much storing up is uh, he just says do not store up treasure period 
So it's not just minimalism for minimalism's sake. Like, oh, okay, I can sell 12 of my pairs of jeans that are still kind of okay. Uh, I, don't have, I haven't even seen four of them for 16 months so that I can have two or three really nice multi, like $1,000 worth of two jeans or whatever. Um, no, that's not what he's saying either. Jesus expects his family to minimize our resources to maximize our generosity. That's it. He expects this. This is the heart of biblical justice. What would this look like for you? Not just money, but time and energy. Jesus' disciple John said it this way later in life. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. What does that look like? If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Unconcerned, overfed, arrogant sin of Sodom. Verse 18, dear children, let us not love with words or speech but with actions and in truth. So where do we go from here? As we come to the table in a couple minutes. I love the Mother Teresa line. You know, if you can't feed 100 people, then feed just one. Who's the one you have not yet fed? Literal food, maybe feeding with love, your time. Maybe there, there is a relationship to invest in. Maybe there is a vulnerable person in your life that you've been unconcerned with. I got this list from Benji Horning at Light Church, and I think it's very helpful. You can snap a picture of this if you want. I do think these 10 steps are very, very practical. How to respond now. How can we step into the world behaving like Yahweh, who gives of himself? Start with prayer, and then listen to the voice of the Spirit. And then number three, do what he says. Remember, it starts with a righteous life, like Noah. If there's anything off in your relationships with God, other self, rest of creation, just repent. You said that word to your parents or you, you had to be right in that conversation with that coworker and the relationship is tweaked. What would righteousness, what's the step to restoring shalom there? And number four, don't compare and contrast causes. Oh, they give to that, I give to this. Like, no, that's, you're, you are an individual called by Jesus to serve God with your unique wiring. Number five, build community and partnerships. Go back to the Connect desk very practically. Say, I am not in community. What would it look like for me? I'm busy. And verse, uh, number six, create margin. If you need to bring in someone who actually can budget, it's very practical. We had our first ever God and Money class a couple months ago. Pete Winstead did a great job helping multiple people one-on-one -on -one budget their stuff so they can see, what do I actually have? What excess do I have? I don't even know. And then number seven, invest in relationship. Number eight, yoke or partner with Jesus. We know he's already at work. Posture yourself to learn and receive which is why you're here, many of you. And then let the cross shape everything. Come back to the communion table week by week, looking at how Jesus inconvenienced himself and then eating of his body and blood, going, Jesus, you brought yourself infinitely low. Empower me just to feed one. Just to feed one, just to build a relationship with one. So as we get ready for Advent, you guys, we're going to be talking about organizations we partner with. I don't know if you have that list. Uh, yeah, yeah. These are some organizations we as elders of Park Hill Church have felt called for this year. Uh, coming up on, this is the end of last year. We partnered with all of these folks. And um, we have seen fruit. And it's been beautiful relationships. You can go on Park Hill's justice page and see these things. Jewish family services, you guys. You can contact them and you and your family or your community can actually cook a meal 
and bring it to this safe parking lot that Jewish Family Services owns, where people who live in their cars, families who live in their cars are waiting for people just to cook meals and eat the meals with them. You can do this. Talk about relationship with the vulnerable and, and, and just being present with your time. This is, that's a profound opportunity. We've had communities that have done this. What would this look like for you? These are just, this is just to get the juices flowing. This is how we follow Jesus. So that's it, church. That's the end of the Future Church series. The next three weeks, we're gonna look at be with Jesus, become like Jesus, do what Jesus did, three weeks. And then we hit Advent, the four weeks of Advent leading up to Christmas. Let's finish this year strong. How is God calling you and me to be his family in the world? Heavenly Father, would you breathe now on us? May we love you with our whole life as evidenced by righteousness and justice for our community and also for those the world deems worthless. May we give them worth. Bring them in. Give them the center of our attention. Feel free to stand, church. We're gonna come to the table now. But as we move in Advent, this is why God came down. (laughs) This is why the light of the world became flesh. To do righteousness and justice for you. And so right now, church, uh, on the right and left, there's, there's communion tables. Feel free to come forward during this song. Listen to the words of institution, body and blood, spoken over you. And then bring it back to your seat and hold on to it. And then Tanika is going to lead us in eating and drinking. And we just have time. We have, we have 10, 12 minutes together. Just be in the presence of our good God. Feel free to take 60 seconds before walking forward and just say yes to what the Spirit wants to do. Thank you, God, for disadvantaging yourself for me.